So we'll continue on with our exploration of this sutta and get to um, what I think is a very interesting part of the teachings and definitely two areas that are not commonly taught under the heading of mindfulness meditation or even vipassana. But they're here in the text as being very important ways of understanding and creating a wise relationship to the body. And this is the section that in here is called anatomical parts. We, it's, it's commonly referred to as the 32 parts of the body meditation. If you count actually the list here, it's a list of different parts of the body. You probably just find 31. Actually, let's see, did they put, but they added the brain. They forgot the brain and that became 32. So we do the brain now. Um, I, I did read about this that it even in the Buddha's time, it wasn't considered to be an exhaustive list of everything that was in the body. You know, one of the teachings said, and so on. You know, so it was like, you know, there's this and the rest. But it's a pretty complete list. It was devised by someone who had a sense of the body inside and out. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting way into the body. Um, looking at these constituent parts. And so the practice is there are these 32 parts that one uh, brings into mindfulness. So as well as being aware, you know, of breath and of body and the sense of posture, and we talked about vibration and pressure and elemental nature, here's another level of mindfulness of the body that's of its actual organs and fluids and... and uh, all, all its constituent kind of parts. This section of the sutta and other ways in which uh, the practice with the body is often talked about have given the mistaken impression that Buddhism is kind of anti-body, or even anti-life a little bit, because uh, this is, these are called asubha practices this practice of the 32 parts of the body. In Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, who generally I think is very accurate, his name for this section is foulness, the body parts. Other teachers have translated this as the loathsomeness of the body or um, you know, the disgusting nature of the body. I don't think this is what the Buddha intended. Asubha suba means beautiful. Asubha means not beautiful. So, of course, you can extend that to foul or whatever, but it's not there in the teachings. And after this list of um, component parts, we're looking at the bottom of page five, the, little, the last paragraph says, just as though there were a bag with an opening at both ends, which is one very gross way of talking about the body, with all many sorts of grains, such as hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, and white rice, and a man with good eyes were to open it and review it thus, this is hill rice, this is red rice, these are beans, these are peas. This is the relationship it's saying we should have with the body. That's not one of loathsomeness or disgust. It's just saying here's what it is. Here's what is in the body. This practice was used as a balancing for the tendency we have to be obsessed with the body, to be attached to the body, to be obsessed with other people's bodies, to be uh, you know, consumed with lust or hatred or whatever for the manifestation of body. 
And this was said to be a balancing, especially for monastics who were celibate. And so they needed to have some way of working with the feelings of lust, desire, passion, sexuality that would come up. And these kinds of practices were said to do that, but only if they were done wisely. It was always the intention that they would bring about, I think, a balanced um, relationship to the body. And later teachings took this and really ran with it, this sense of the body is foul and what you want to do is, you know, yuck, nothing to do with it. It's, you know, just, I won't go into some of the analogies they use, but, you know, there was that kind of sense of the body. But it's not there in the text. It's not there in this, certainly in this particular sutta. And I know for myself, no one I knew taught this as a practice, um, and, but I was going on a self-retreat and I wanted to practice it. So I read what I could, which is this sutta, and um, a commentary on it, which goes in the direction of foulness or whatever. That was all I could find. I asked all my friends who teaches it, what, what it was anything written on it. There wasn't anything when I was trying to do this practice. I, uh, actually, I found a few little things, but they weren't that helpful. But I did the practice, you know, it's very clear from this text and another big text called the Vasudhimaga, um, how you do the practice. And so I took it upon myself just to teach myself in its uh, two or three week self-retreat. And I was actually very lucky. I was practicing at the Forest Refuge, which is part of our sister center on the East Coast, where it's more like a self-retreat place. And they have a large library. And I just happened to find in it the catalog for Body Worlds. You know what Body Worlds is? It's that exhibition where this, I think he's a doctor, took dead bodies and and plastinated them, I think was the term he used. It's basically like... um, mummifying them, but could put them in lifelike poses and open up a lot of them. And so if you go into that exhibition, there are, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 dead bodies, um, young and old in in various states of health. Um, And they're opened up in all these different ways. And the catalog shows that. So it was just amazing to find this gift in this library that showed me what a spleen looked like or, you know, I don't know what, even the kidneys and where they were and all these things that we kind of know about but don't really have a felt sense of. So that became my Bible for the practice and I began it. Um, And what I found was I didn't end up with loathing or disgust for the body. I ended up with a sense of awe at the magical mystery nature of the body, that this body does so much, most of which we have no clue about all of the things that it's secreting and balancing and digesting and retaining and getting rid of. I mean, it was quite amazing to sit with the body in this way. And of course, its other point is, well, I'll ask you, when we look at the body in this way, and maybe you've looked through it, it's just this listing of 32 parts of the body. What again is the Buddha pointing towards as a way to relate to the body? to just see it as not personal, personal. and also universal. That, you know, I don't have to be attached to my kidney or my spleen. It's just a kidney. We all have, hopefully most of it, you know, sometimes organs go missing over various courses of a lifetime, but mainly we've got the full set. Um, And they're just doing what they do. They're not personal to me the way, you you know, we might have our own ways the body is, 
been affected by our experience and diet and genetics, etc. But the basic functioning is just very universal. So again, it loses this sense of specialness or uniqueness or shame even about our bodies. It's just body. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who's another of our um, very well-known commentators, says very clearly, and he's very well read, the, that the Buddha encouraged a wise relationship to the body. He says, although early Buddhism is widely believed to take a negative attitude towards the body, the texts of the Pali Canon do not support this belief. They approach the body both in its positive role as an object of meditation to develop mindfulness, concentration, and the mental powers based on concentration, and in its negative role as an object for unskillful states of mind. Even in its negative role, the body is not the culprit. The problem is the mind's attachment to the body. Once the body can be used in its positive role to develop mindfulness and concentration, those mental qualities can be used to free the mind of its attachment to the body. Then, as many a modern meditation master has noted, the mind and body can live in peace. And I really agree with that. That is the intention of this practice. And he also mentions in that piece, concentration. To do this practice where you work with memorizing and sensing into these 32 parts of the body is incredibly concentrating because um, there's a whole system that you do it. You divide it into, I forget now how many, it's like five sets of five or six pieces of the body in each and you just start with the first set and you do it forwards and then you do it backwards and then you do it forwards and backwards and then you add the next set so you do the first set and the second set and you do it forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and both so you go through and by the end you're remembering and feeling into all of these parts of the body and I didn't I didn't have that long and I don't you know I can't say my concentration is that good I got to a sense of actually not just imagining, you know, knowing from looking at this book or my own understanding of what a kidney is and where it is, but actually to bring mindfulness to it. And people who are adept at this can bring mindfulness to these parts of the body and know them in the same way you would know your hand. It's possible. And I mentioned this teacher, Paok Sayadaw, who, who teaches this practice where you do internally and externally. He teaches to the level where your mindfulness is so acute that you can be mindful of someone else's blood or kidney or phlegm or pus or whatever. This is what it said, and I, I, you know, I have to believe that that's so, that I've, spoke, I've spoken directly to people who've had that experience for themselves. So let's look and see what the Buddha is telling us to be aware of. So the monk reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair, enclosed by skin as full of many kinds of impurity <laughs> thus. In this body, there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowels, mesentery, contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, not, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. And now we add brain, because brain, very important. But the, the, I think the most important thing is how we relate to that. It's like this bag with openings at both ends, and we just look and see, what is this nature of the body? Yeah, the question? 
He left out a lot, left out a lot. And as I said, it wasn't, I just read recently, it wasn't considered to be an exhaustive list, um, et cetera, was on the end of, of some of them. Um, so there's a lot now, especially that we know is left out, but it's more than enough to get a sense of the body and how the body works. So um, it's a really interesting way of being with the body. Um, what else did I want to say about the body? And it's, it's a way of being with the body, again, without, context, without uh, concept. It's just body. And also what it does is break up the solidity of the body. You know, most of the time, and thank goodness, body is well enclosed by skin, right? And it's all held together. And, you know, we try to make this external one, you know, as much as we care about it, look as good as it can. You know, we exercise and eat good food and we wash and we bathe and whatever. But we have this solidity to the body, right? You know, this is me and it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's definitely separate. But as you go into the body and explore it in this way, this, this whole way of being with the body really kind of explodes because there's such a, a, a different relationship. Um, and so we start to see the body in its constituent parts, uh, the way it's made up, that it's not personal, it's universal. Um, it's arising and passing, all of these things are shifting and changing, and it's not me and it's not mine, it's not who I am. So. It's always pointing back to that, pointing back to this possibility of relating to our experience, not in a way that brings up judgment or fear or loathing or attachment or greed or pride, but just the way it is, just body, just body, just like this. So it's a very powerful practice, and again, not one that we do a lot. Since the time that I was trying to practice, this is a number of years ago now, um, there's one teacher, particularly in the, air, in the uh, Bay Area, Bob Stahl, who teaches down at Santa Cruz, and he was taught this practice by his teacher, Tangpula Sayada, and um, is now teaching it. So now we actually do a 32 parts of the body retreat at Spirit Rock, which is great if you get interested in this. Bob Stahl has put up this great website called 32parts.com and on it he has all the listings of things and you you know there's the web you click on it and it gets this photo of what it is and it tells you how it works and how it functions with other things and what color it is and has all of the very traditional practices associated with this so there's a lot more resources about this and I'll talk a little bit about this at the end for homework um, when we get to the end of the day but any questions about this section and uh, how to relate to the body and then we'll do a practice. Yes? Well, again, I think the word he's translating is asuba. So it literally means not, I'm not sure, I don't know for that, but um, that's my understanding. And it, there definitely was a sense of using this to decrease obsession with the body. When I talk about a balanced view, of the body, it doesn't mean you know the body is the temple of light, and you know the you know some practices can go on into. It's really what's a balanced view, and if we look at the body, there is right snot and phlegm and pus, and <laughs> it's all there. So 
there, that, that is definitely in there, but not that it should result in a feeling of aversion to the body or, or that the body is loathsome. It's just, this is the nature of the body. It has all this smelly stuff in it, you know, and stuff that's a little yucky, especially it's bad enough our stuff, but if it's someone else's stuff, like, it's really yucky, you know, most of the time. We, we, we have to work to, you know, deal with that. So it's just acknowledging this nature of the body that we're so used to just looking at the kind of, you know, even though we can have judgments about that, but basically it's better than most of the stuff that's inside. You know, our basic relationship is more approving than the insides. Yeah. I'm having trouble with this body not as concept. Mm-hmm. Feeling. Well, that's what all these practices are meant to do, you know, instead of sitting here thinking my knee or my knee feels like this, is to bring the mindfulness into the experience and feel its vibratory, pulsing, tingling, pressured, e- elemental nature. And it's a practice to do that. We've lived so long out of our concepts, it actually can be hard to bring awareness into the body. Many people live their lives, you know, from here on up. And this is somewhat radical. Some, some people have a very comfortable relationship with their body, but for many of us, it's a learning of how to actually be in the body and be in the body as it is, rather than idea, our ideal of the body or what we would want the body to be. And sometimes we can also have, you know, it's a kind of new age thing. It should be in the body and the body's great and I'm comfortable. You know, and that's how the body should be in meditation. And we sit, and the body's kind of a little gassy, and it's achy, and maybe it burps, or it farts, or it does something. It's like, no, I don't want that body. I want, you know, this body of light that I should have in meditation. So this is pointing to the body as it is, a felt sense of the body. And it's a learning for most of us how to actually drop down in. But that's why these are all doorways through the breath, through awareness of movement, through the elements, through the parts of the body, to actually feel the body as it is. Yeah. A lot of what we're doing feels like hard work. Uh, and one feels that meditation is supposed to also help you escape from hard work. And I'll give you an example. We were sitting in the bushes and told you a snake came along. One doesn't like to think about a snake, but I was feeling very relaxed, very joyful, very pleasant. Now that's an image one it's very difficult to suppress some images of horror or fear or pain. Um, do you just pre- does one just have to continue working on all the things that you said to try and get rid of that image? Do you confront it? So that's a, a, in some ways a complex question. She's saying, I, I think if the beginning was meditation is supposed to make you feel better or be joyful and sometimes difficult things happen. I wouldn't say that the purpose of meditation Oh, a hard work. Yes. A meditation is hard work. I don't think anything else. Um, its intention is to bring peace and ease and calm. But I start, the words I had at the beginning, diligent, ardent, you know, continuous. These are not, you know, just sit down and everything will be nice. Meditation is really hard work if we do it seriously. And yes, its intention is to find balance, but it's not by getting rid of difficult experiences, say the snake or whatever, but certainly 
feelings of anger or fear or loneliness or grief or sadness, but by understanding them. And the only way we understand them is to have a mind trained enough that it will stay steady to be with them and understand their nature, which is also impermanent, uh, not personal and unreliable. So it's not, it is, it's intention the way it goes, but in the moment it can be very difficult, very challenging. And this is, to even understand this, to sit through this day is hard work. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid it is. The way I teach it and experience it and practice it, you, maybe you can go somewhere else and they'll just dance and sing and everything. But, it, you know, the Buddha was a very serious guy. He was, you read the text, he was like, don't mess with me. You know, this is serious stuff. And it depends what our intention is in practice, too. Well, in, in unreliability is to do with both of those. So it's, it's the things are impermanent, means there is nothing in the outer world that we can put our hopes on or our destiny on that will give us lasting happiness. Because it will change. It's unreliable in the sense it will change. Even the, the dearest relationship you have will change. Even if it's a long-lasting relationship, one or the other of you will get sick and die or have an accident. This is just the nature of life. It is unreliable. You cannot look for your lasting happiness in the things of this world. You can find some happiness, sure, but not the lasting happiness that the Buddha talked about because it will change. So that's what unreliable is just another translation of dukkha suffering, which we sometimes translate as suffering, but it's suffering because it's unreliable. Can't, can't depend on it ultimately. Even things that, like, these were meant to be impermanent. They, we had a five-year lease on them, and 20 years later we're still sitting in them as they fall apart around us. Um, so they're unreliable. You know, they leak in the, in the winter, and they're cold and drafty when it's cold. And they're unreliable as a, a source of safety or happiness. It's a bit, very important teaching, actually. Yeah. So, is the intent of this mindfulness of the body really to recognize the impermanence of the parts of the body? I ask that because uh, what I've studied also talks about how our brain, our mind starts thinking of concepts, it, it associates a concept to the body, mm -hmm. and it gives it a name, a mm -hmm. form, and, and the name and the form is what really we get caught up in. Mm -hmm. So is, by being mindful, are we trying to notice that and acknowledge it and just say, it is it, it is that, it is the kidney, it is the... So in, in relationship to this particular practice, um, what we've been training to notice is the impermanence of everything that's conditioned, including our minds, including our thoughts, including our moods and emotions and our concepts. They're also all impermanent and unreliable. And so the training is to notice them. The theme of today is the body, so it's why I'm emphasizing more the body. The last two classes will be more about the mind and how we work skillfully with the mind. But yet we notice with mindfulness what we're doing. 
We notice how we're holding on to ideas or concepts. And again, I'm not quite sure I understood your question, but around the, the 32 parts of the body, yes, in some ways it's a concept to say kidney, but the idea of the meditation is to get beyond or deeper than the concept to the felt sense, just as you would the felt sense of you know my hand resting on my leg. I can say that's, a, that's my hand resting on my leg. But if I just feel what's there, there's just warmth, pressure, and tingling. So that's the felt sense. And it can be the same with the parts of the body. But again, I don't want to spend too much time on this because most of us will never practice in this way. Um, I, I would be love it if you did, but it's just, it's a challenging practice and it takes a long time to develop. Um, but we start often with concepts. It's not that concepts inherently bad. We just have to recognize them as concepts rather than the reality. Most of the time, our relationship to hand is through our concept of hand, not the felt sense of hand. And the concept of hand is very useful, you know? Concept, concept of me is very useful, but it is a concept and I need to see that there's other realities or other truths about this experience of me. Okay, I want us to do a short meditation on that. I was going to do a longer one, but time is ticking on, and we've got another very important area to cover. And as I said, this is a challenging meditation. I did two or three weeks of it and just touched the surface of it. It's going to be hard to get a sense just in the short time we have. But as I said, the way um, this, the uh, 32 parts are set up, uh, there are these groupings, um, I have the list here. There are these six groupings, and each one has five or six pieces in it. And it goes from the outer to more inner. It starts with head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, and then goes into the flesh, the sinews, the bones, the bone marrow, and the kidneys, and then a little deeper into the organisms, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs. Then it goes lower to intestines, stomach, feces. There they add the brain. And then the liquids, the obvious liquids, bile, phlegm, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat. And then the more subtle liquids, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, urine. So it's kind of, there is a systematic approach to it. I'm just going to start with that first set because they're ones that we're familiar with. We see them, we feel them, so they're <laughs> obvious. And invite you into just a short 15-minute meditation on the first of these uh, parts of the body meditations. So starting as we always do by sitting comfortably. Perhaps by now you've found a way into the meditation that works for you. Relaxing, moving a little to release any tension, a few deeper breaths, stretching, Settling. And opening to an awareness of the breath in the body. Inviting the breath at first to be calming or relaxing. 
or to be in a way that helps you connect with it. Full body breathing, awareness of the whole body as you breathe, or perhaps in a simpler area of the nostrils, chest or abdomen. And as I invite you into connecting with these different parts of the body, we start wherever we can make a connection. Sometimes we can feel, actually feel, a certain part of our body. Sometimes it's a more subtle sensing into it. Sometimes you do use your concepts or imagination to connect with this part of the body. It doesn't matter, this is just a doorway, and we know what we're doing. We know that it's just a concept or an imagination. You're using your imagination. But we do this to help us get closer to this experience. So again, this is part of training the mind. No right or wrong way to do this, but just learning how to explore our experience in its immediacy. So the first of these pointings is to head hair, the hair of the head. For some people, if your hair is longer, it might be touching your face or your neck, and you can feel that. You just let your attention rest there. Explore the nature of head hair. And in this, there's a sense of where it is. You know, it's around the head, it's in this area of the head. If your hair is short or there's not much sensation, the training is just to put your awareness into this area of body and see what you can feel or sense or imagine. So we might know, just because we do know, the color of our hair. So there's that. We can just bring in the color. Perhaps we're aware of the texture of our hair. It's thick or thin, coarse or smooth. Perhaps our hair is straight or curly. Again, it's a whole way of directing the attention that's perhaps a new for you, but is a training. Not to tell a story about your hair. I like my hair. I need to get my hair cut. You know, I wish my hair wouldn't do this. But just hair growing out of the body in the way that it does.
and then body hair. Again, we all have different amounts in different places. Can you just feel into the places there are hairs on the body? Some hair on a lot of the body. Most of the time we don't feel it. Hairs on the arms or the chest, under the arms, pubic hair, hairs on the legs, hair on the face, on the back. And the training is just to open the senses to bring awareness to this part of the body. You can use your imagination. Perhaps you have a visual image of a part of the body with body hair. But even if you use a visual image, see if you can draw it closer to your actual felt sense. So there's this movement that happens. It first perhaps starts in the mind, but you invite it into the felt sense of the body. And then next is nails. We have nails on our fingers, thumbs, nails on our toes. Not something we typically bring mindfulness to. Again, you mightn't be able to directly contact any sensation. There's a way in which nails are dead, essentially, as they grow out. But it's just putting your awareness in that area of the body. You know what your nails look like. Know their nature. You know their color. Can you bring awareness to this part of the body? Now bring your awareness to your teeth. Again, it's something that we use all the time, but don't often bring actual mindfulness to unless there's a problem, toothache, difficulty in the mouth. Now 
all different kinds of teeth, shapes of tooth, fillings in teeth, crowns and false teeth. Just bring your awareness to your teeth. Perhaps you can feel them with your tongue. It's okay to move your tongue around and feel the shape, the hardness, the roundness, the smoothness of your teeth. You have a sense of what they look like from looking in the mirror. Can you bring that concept of tooth into the felt sense (coughs) in the body? There's a way in which teeth are alive at the root, and yet some kind of inanimate material outside. Perhaps you have a lot of story around your teeth, difficulty with teeth, alignment or bite or failure of teeth. So notice what the mind is doing. Can you just be with the bare experience of your teeth? Notice the elemental nature. Teeth are hard, like earth element. But you can feel the water element of their smoothness, the saliva in the mouth. And lastly, the skin, said to be the largest organ of the body. This membrane that protects us, keeps us together, keeps bacteria and infections out, has this amazing ability to heal itself when it gets cut or scraped. Skin over every part of the body, different forms it takes, different textures. Just letting your awareness travel through the body, all these manifestations of skin. Perhaps you notice skin through warmth or tightness or tingling. Pressure or pulsing. Open awareness, full awareness of the body encased by skin.
So just reviewing, sometimes when we do this meditation, we go quite quickly through the areas. So as I mention them, just tuning into whatever you connected with in the meditation. Head hair. Body hair. Nails. Teeth. Skin. So I know this is a hard meditation to feel into if you've had no exposure to it, but did you have any way of connecting with anything that I mentioned? Anyone want to share how their experience was? Yes. I started with the meta. Mm-hmm. Um, just saying something positive, something that I want. I want strong, thick hair. Oh, mm-hmm. Something healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that helped you connect? Yeah, so she did meta for the parts of the body, which is a nice way to do it. But did you get a sense, a direct sense of the actual body part? Some. Some. Yeah, it's not easy. It, it really takes time. Anyone else, what your experience was? Yeah. Um, I got a bee sting at lunch. Mm. So um, it was really interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And be focusing on the other parts of the body. Yes. Yeah, good. I mean, not good that you got a bee sting, but I'm sorry about that. But it is something that we learn through these kinds of practices. As I said before, sometimes we feel we need to be on pain patrol. Wherever the problem is, whether it's emotional or physical, it's like, I've got to dive in and fix this and change this. And through this broadening of understanding, it's like, yes, there's this throbbing wherever it is, and my teeth are fine. Well, my hair, you know, isn't giving me, pro you know, it's certainly not painful. And it just expands our sense of what's going on in the body, not just to be glommed on to what's difficult. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, uh, a couple things. First of all, I just noticed it was really hard. I, thinking of grease, like I couldn't ha hold on to anything in the meditation, yeah. you know, there was nothing to grab yeah, onto. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just in and of itself, that's actually not a bad, you know, because we do want to hold on to stuff, and yeah. here it's like, and it's, so this, it requires a subtlety of mindfulness to stay in this area, even though I'm, you know, like nails, it's like, but to, it's a training, so, yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing was that, um, so... Unlike the elements practice, which kind of depersonalizes things, mm -hmm. this practice for me also a lot of judgment came mm. up. You know, when you said about seeing your teeth in the mirror, <laughs> and I just immediately thought about, oh, this tooth could be over, you know, <laughs> a little out of alignment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then, and then I ended up having my butt started getting really sore, 
And then I went back to the elements, and it was just like, oh. <laughs> Great. So uh, did anyone not hear what he said? Okay. A great comment. And, you know, as I said, it's not that this practice works for everyone, so we'll all find our different doorways in. But in any practice, especially a practice like this, when you start it, there are layers you go through to get to the actual experience. We have to go through our attitudes and our judgments and our fears and our hopes to actually get to what's real here. So that's not bad or wrong that that happens. It's actually part of the, you could call it purification, of just seeing what, where am I attached? Where am I averse in this relationship to the body? So this is part, very much part of the process and it's meant to happen in a way. So we refine and refine that until we're able to just see just teeth. And, you know, maybe we'll go back to, well, I, you know, I need to clean my teeth and, you know, all that stuff. But some essential way of understanding the, the bare nature of just teeth, you know. So, yeah, it's a whole process. Okay, as I said, just a, a short introduction. I'll say a little bit more about that as a, as a homework. Um, what I want, we're going on to the last, the, the, the um, ultimate section of this, which is in some ways the most challenging, the corpse reflections. But I thought we should either take a bathroom break, very short, or those of you that don't need it, you can stay and I'll do a short guided uh, movement meditation. So let's just take five minutes, um, if you go to the bathroom if you need to, so you can come back. If we're doing corpse meditation, it's helpful to feel a little at ease in the body to open that. And those of you that just want to stay, you're welcome to stand up in your place and I will do a short guided stretching body meditation. We're talking about mindfulness of all of the parts of the body. So being able to feel that you are in the body and at home in the body is really valuable. So at our many, most of our retreats, we include sessions of yoga or qigong because it's so helpful to have a wise relationship to the body where we take care of it. So just stand, start by standing. You know, we've been sitting for a while and even that can feel better for the body. So loosen the body up in whatever way you, you like to do after sitting for so long and just feel the body moving. You know, again, the elemental nature, the feet on the floor is kind of the earth element. I can feel this kind of liquidity in my stomach if I'm moving. It's kind of soft and you know, there's that sense of the air element there as well. And then let's just stretch up. You can cro uh, cross your, clasp your hands if you like and just stretch up as high as you can. If you want to bend a little either side. Notice how you're breathing as you're doing this. Can you keep a breath going that's relatively deep? And then letting the arms drop down. Clasping your hands behind your back. Just pulling your arms behind you, stretching out the shoulders and the chest feeling the shoulder blades come together. And then letting that go. The, I often do this very set of m movements because I find them all helpful for meditation, to, to lift the body up because we sit, 
to open the shoulders because we tend to hunch. And so another great one for meditation is just shoulder rotations. Many of us get tight and tense in the area of the shoulders and the neck from just sitting, from doing computer work, or any manual labor that we might do. So just very aware of moving the shoulders and then rotating in the opposite direction. And then perhaps alternate shoulder moving. Rustling a little. Going in the opposite direction. And coming into stillness. And being aware of your breath as you do these practices. Seeing if the belly can say, stay soft and open. And then just some simple head movements, letting the head drop down to the chest, and then gradually moving it side to side, not all the way around, just side to side, up and down. And then bringing the head up and just looking behind your left shoulder and then behind your right shoulder, keeping the head level just as far as feels right to you. That flexibility of the spine, keeping this sense of movement and openness really important for a healthy body. Just turn and look either side. And then just a nodding movement and only taking the head back as far as feels right for you and then letting it fall down to the chest. (coughs) And again, into stillness. Lastly, just some hip swivels. Again, having the spine be flexible Sitting around a lot, we get tight and tense. As much movement as feels right for you, however big the circle is. Going in the other direction. and then coming to stillness. We could do more, but I think most people have come back, so hopefully that will keep you awake for the next few half hour or so. So I, yes. Mm. exhausted and I'm wondering if I 
in part of it is just doing the elements and the, the other kinds of things you walked us through. Those are the things that you apply lying down, or if there's something a little. There's, I'll talk more about that at the end, but basically you don't need to do anything different. In lying down, just as in standing, you can do exactly the same kind of meditation, whatever it is you feel works. But going to sleep, I know, can be challenging. Usually you want a calming kind of meditation. So I, do some, I just do breath, calming breath, breath in the body. So, so you focus on the, on the breathing in, breathing in. Yeah. Yeah, and especially a calming breath, that the belly is soft, that the body is relaxed. I'll say a little bit more about that at the end, and if I don't, remind me, because that, that was going to be part of our homework, was lying down meditation. So, so going on to this last uh, section of the sutta, I mean, in some ways I realize I'm giving it short shrift because it's, it is a very powerful teaching, but it's so powerful that there was no way that I could address it adequately in, as part of a day long today. What it is, is a reflection on a decaying corpse um, as a practice, as a mindfulness practice. And again, we don't traditionally teach that here at Spirit Rock, though have begun to do so more and more. Actually, Eugene Cash, uh, someone I teach with regularly, did a day long just the other day on death and poetry and it was very meaningful for him because he was in a very major bike accident, bicycling accident, uh, a year or so ago and could have died. And so he used to like to te teach on death and now he really likes to teach on death. And so there are more um, access to it. And in those day longs, and actually we do this at Dedicated Practitioners Program too, we do a whole session on the death contemplations. Um, we actually have photos of a decaying corpse, and if people feel ready to do that, they're invited to contemplate that and do it as a meditation. So um, we are doing it more. Uh, sometimes there's a retreat on the four foundations of mindfulness, and we'll include that in there. So if this interests you, you can look for it. But not something that's certainly taught on regular retreats, but it's a very important part of the Buddha's teachings. It's in the Satipatthana Sutta, and he <laughs> talks often about going to charnel grounds and having the, these kinds of reflections on a decaying corpse. We do not have channel grounds, uh, certainly in Marin County, don't know about the East Bay or other places, but no, I don't think so. Um, in Asia, you know, this is something you can see. It's certainly in Varanasi, if any of you have been to India, they still have the burning guts where they burn bodies. I was there both my visits to India recently and, you know, had the privilege of, of and the powerful uh, practice of seeing that, seeing a body placed on a fire and going through those processes. Um, but for most of us, most of people in the West, death is hidden away. We do not have access to seeing this. Actually, Bob Stahl, who I mentioned earlier, who teaches the 32 parts of the body, does a whole class series on it down in Santa Cruz. And as part of his <coughs> class series, he's made a connection to the anatomy lab at the local community college. And so at the end of his class series, he uh, has w works with a teacher there, so they go in and view these um, bodies that have been set up for autopsies. And so he invited Spirit Rock teachers to participate. So uh, my husband and I went down and a few other people and did that. And so there are occasionally opportunities to see a, a dead body in this kind of sense, um, especially one that's been opened up for, uh, for autopsy. 
and it's powerful to, you know, I was there and I held this person's skull with their brain in it in my hands. It gives you a different relationship to, again, your own uh, physicality and someone's life that was so precious and is, not, is no more. So in this section of the sutta, the interesting part is we're at the bottom of page six. It starts as the, the monk, as though he were to see. So right at the beginning isn't a requirement <laughs> that we go find a dead body and watch it decay, but you can use your imagination or texts or pictures, and so this is a way in. And on the other thing I should say, most of us don't have access to human bodies, but we often have access to animal bodies. Here at Spirit Rock, there are often animals that die. We've had many examples of especially deer that have been killed by something and watching that and just actually taking that in as a teaching. You know, our usual response is either ooh or poor thing, you know, I wish it hadn't died. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with both of those responses, but to actually look and see, you know, here's a dead body. Here is it going through its natural process of decay, and this is what decay looks like. And in the practice, the big teaching is, and I am not separate from that. This is what, what again, these all point to is, this is the nature of my body, too. You know, if I'm going to be attached to the body, at some point I'm going to suffer through that attachment because this is the nature of bodies. So, as, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two or three days dead, bloated, livid, oozing matter. It doesn't pull any punches. I mean, this is what happens to the body. Being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals or various kinds of worms. And then each subsequent section is a state of further decay. And so it, it, the little ellipses, the dots, are um, there's a repetition. He's, he's leaving out the repetition. So to observe a skeleton with flesh and blood held together, flesh and blood held together with sinews, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood held together with sinews, a skeleton without flesh and blood held together with sinews, disconnected bones scattered in all directions, bones bleached white, the color of shells. Bones heaped up more than a year old, bones rotten and crumbling to dust. He compares this body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from this fate. So there's all sorts of responses we might have to that of, you know, why would I want to go do that? But as we've pointed out through each of these sections, it's a teaching. And the teaching is not to be identified. If we're identified and attached to this body, we're going to suffer because this body is of the same fate. And so it invites this, again, reflection on impermanence, on unsatisfactoriness and unreliability, even of this body that we feel so identified with. I mean, there's nothing we have known as long as this body. First breath, this body. Last breath, this body. Um, Yet it is of this nature to change, to uh, grow. You know, the, 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 from this practice, there is a set of five subjects for frequent recollection that in monasteries throughout the world they chant. And, it, uh, you know, there's a whole round to the chanting, but it's basically, I'm of the nature to age, to get sick, to die. All that is beloved to me, I will be separated from, and I am the heir to my karma. 
But every day in monasteries they will chant that just as a reminder. I, this body is of the nature to get old, to get sick and to die. To have that as a reflection, not to morbidity. You know, this is not again as nihilism or uh, death delighting, you know, what's the point, we're all going to end up dying anyway, but really to come into this wise relationship to the body. You know, I appreciate the body. I treat it as best I can with good food and exercise and whatever, but it is of this nature, no matter what we do. All of the patterns or ways of relating to the body that you can see out there, I mean, Every body that you see in a magazine these days is photoshopped, right? You know, there's even different bodies under the head. You know, it's not even the person's body, let alone changing the body. And they do it to such a degree of distortion that these people look like aliens. You know, they've got feet coming out of the wrong places and they don't have hips anymore or whatever, especially for women. I mean, it's just amazing what, what they do out of this distorted view of body. This says, this is the nature of the body. It will go through this process. How do we relate wisely to that? How do we hold that for ourselves and for others? And again, it's not trying to downplay or minimize the love that we can feel for people. I just, not only a couple of months ago, I had a dear friend die, and she was a Dharma practitioner, and she approached her death with such grace. She went through real difficulty and resistance and fear at times, but basically a great sense of openness. And I felt enormous sadness and grief at her passing. But I knew it wasn't wrong. And she knew it wasn't wrong. This is the nature of this body. Whatever happens to us, and something will, you know? Who's not going to die here? It's like, I don't know. I actually, when I was, I give a whole talk on the body and I looked up, I don't know how I even got to it, but there's something called the Immortality Institute. I have to read you the line. Um, the Immortality Institute, I've got it in here somewhere. It's something like de dealing with the, the ridiculousness of it, premature dying or something like that. Where is it? I can't find it. Can't find it. But it's something like that. It's like the inconvenience of premature death or something like that, you know. And people have this idea that in an ideal world we would live forever. I don't know if I want to live in that world, do you? I mean, what, what would we all end up being like and who would support us and who would go to work and feed into the social security fund and everything. It's just all kinds of problems. But it's, a, it's an invitation, again, to come into alignment with the truth of things. And to sit with a dead body is a powerful teaching because there's this, again, magical mystery in aliveness. This spark of life that's there in someone's eyes through a breath. The warmth, this element of fire that animates us. And to be with a dead body that's completely still and cold and doesn't have that, that spark. And it just it invites us into the mystery 
of life and death. And so in Buddhism, we don't shy away from that. It's actually a subject for reflection, for contemplation, that this is the nature of the body. How to do that with a balanced mind and heart that, that opens to compassion, that cares about people's suffering, that cares about life, but realizes this is what will happen. It isn't bad or wrong when that happens. We might feel all kinds of responses, and of course there are deaths that are incredibly tragic and unfortunate and out of accidents or, you know, violence or whatever. But it is the nature, ultimately. We cannot persist forever. And so all of these teachings keep coming back to this essential truth or teaching of impermanence, we're not in control, and that if we hold on, if we try to hold on, we will suffer. We will be in uh, conflict with the way things are. And so this is the purpose of this whole teaching on Satipatthana, is to bring us into alignment with the truth of things as it actually is, as close as we can get to it. And we get to it with our minds, through our concepts, through our ideas and thoughts and wishes and likes and dislikes. That's all there, but we keep seeing through that so so we get closer and closer to actuality. And again, not to deny the life of the mind. As I said, concepts are useful and valuable and they help create things, but we see them for what they are. This is again and again the pointing of this teaching is can I get closer to the truth of things without layers of perception or projection, likes and dislikes. And you'll see this theme being built throughout this series of classes in all the different ways the Buddha says, and now this doorway, this doorway. And I really see uh, these teachings as offering doorways. You know, there's no one right way to meditate, no only way to meditate. There are all of these different ways that we can relate to experience. And for each of us at different times, we'll have a different doorway in. But to know there's so much more than just being mindful of what's here, and we'll talk about cultivation of the mind in the other, uh, especially the third and fourth day longs in this series, which is, and the the satipatthanas get more subtle, they get more refined. Here, you know, as I said, there's such a wisdom in beginning with right here and now, this body, how it is, finding different ways in, and then we refine through understanding the Vedana, the feeling tone, and then the life of the mind, and then the Dhammas, the last foundation that really pulls the whole thing together. So it's such a wise set of teachings um, that really, it does it. It, it. it can encompass every aspect of our life from beginning to end, from suffering to freedom. It's all here in this text, in this teaching. So I want to say um, some words about keeping this practice going, homework, etc. But before I do that, any questions or comment about this section on the corpse reflections, um, your response to that, anyone who's had any experience in this area, practicing in this way, sitting with dead bodies, doing hospice work, whatever. Yes, at the back. on after death. 
Does the Buddha have any insight? He's got 26 volumes like this, much of which are his insights into what happens. So, yes, he does. No. No, I mean, Buddhism, I don't want to go into it because it's a huge subject. I mean, it involves a teaching on karma, which the Buddha talked about a lot, and then rebirth, reincarnation, that um, we go from life to life, and, you know, dependent on the um, qualities of our mind that we've cultivated. So, no, it definitely continues. Yes? Thank you for this last part. Um, it closed the gap in my life. Mm. Um, I had a lot of dead bodies when I was a young man. As an old man, um, I had the privilege, now I see it as a privilege, of having sat with a, a man who was 20 years my elder, my father, mm. a father-like figure, who died. And I stayed in that room with him for eight hours. Mm. And then I had to go tell his wife that he was gone. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't figure out how to deal with those eight hours. Mm. And it's, it's come, it comes together through this. Yeah, yeah. And it is as a, it's an invitation to be present in the face of something that's really difficult. And what I see is we practice it, you know, through our imagination even. You know, this is what happens to the body. So when we're actually faced with it, the mindfulness can be steady enough to actually be okay. And, you know, it's easy for me to sit here. I know I, I, I will have my challenges when I die, when my husband gets sick. And I'm not saying I'll just float through with equanimity. But there's some awareness of a possibility or a capacity to know this and be present for it and to not add the agitation of, you know, this is terrible, it shouldn't happen, I can't bear this, but that I can know this and sit with this. And, you know, there's a lot more to say, obviously, about death and being with death and dying people as trainings one can do. The Tibetans have a whole set of practices around it, that wonderful book, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Within our tradition, Stephen Levine has written a book, many books, um, Who Dies uh, is one of them talking about this mystery of death. And actually, the next study program that Spirit Rock is initiating is being called the Heavenly Messengers. They were considered to be four heavenly messengers that started the Buddha on his path, and they were old age, sickness, and death. And so it's a two-year program with five retreats all around opening to old age, sickness, and death and a contemplative path of practice. So. It's, it's, there's many opportunities here to practice with this that really serve us in those challenging situations. Yeah. Can I reverse what you're saying? If a practitioner encourages somebody to accept death, that can be a more pleasant option than coping with the, the traumas of life, the thoughts that you can't release yourself from. I'm, I don't understand what you're Just saying. inverting your argument. Mm -hmm. If a practitioner encourages somebody to accept the naturalness and the peacefulness of death, mm -hmm. that can become a more attractive option to people than trying to force themselves to cope with the vagaries. Oh, I see. Okay. So saying that if we accept death, it becomes a more attractive option. This is not a, um, uh, an advocacy of suicide or even euthanasia. It's just when the body is going through this experience of old age, sickness, and death, we're with it as it does that. It's not, you know, there are other parts, and that would be a whole discussion about what are the mind states that would lead one in the direction you're talking about. That's not what this is, that's not what this is pointing to. It really is just being with things as they are, not interfering by choosing death in any way. 
but just when that's the natural process that's happening. Um, it, you know, it's, uh, Buddhism, it's all about intention and what's in the mind. And if it's, things are done out of aversion or out, or out of attachment, then they, they cause uh, difficulties, they cause problems. So it's not that we want to, you know, oh, it's much simpler just to die and not deal with this. Uh, the Buddha didn't talk like that about death, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, the temp- yeah. Well, you know, we can we can misunderstand any teaching. Um, that's not the intention of this teaching. As I said, it is just to be with a process as it's happening in, a, in as real a way as we can, not to push some, lead someone towards that. And but it can happen. You know, I'm, it probably could. I was going to tell a story, but no, I won't. In this or a story in the suttas. Okay, but our time is running out. I do have some things I want to say before we close. So I started by saying this is just the, even though it's a whole day on just this one section, you can see how rich it is. We could spend weeks going through all the nuances and practicing this and deepening this. But I hope it gives you a sense of the breadth of the Buddha's teaching and the different doorways that there are in and that there are different ways to practice. That's mainly what... I want you uh, to get from this. So if you are signed up and are planning to come back to the next class, what I would like you to do, and again, you know, it's just for your own edification. I won't be here, so I won't know. But I told you there's 115 pages where the Buddha just goes through the couple of opening paragraphs. They're real to me really interesting to read. And then to go on and read the section he has on the body. So you'll be going through most of the book, unfortunately, by the time you come back, because um, the body section goes to page 156. And then if you were to read ahead to the feeling section, which is what you do last, and that's very short, so you could just add that. That only looks like about 10 pages. But read as much as you feel interested in. That's just my recommendation. That's why we gave you the book. It's such a great overview of, of what he's pointing to. And you have a month to do it. Um, see, see how far you get. I invited you to have Dhamma Buddies in this program. A number of you made that connection, which I'm really happy about. I'll be curious. I'll tell the uh, Shada who's doing next time, and, and she'll check in with you too. The idea of the Dhamma Buddies is basically just someone to share this practice with, a little bit of accountability so that you have someone saying, did you read it? I won't be saying that, but they'll know whether you read it or not because you won't be saying anything. Um, So it's really, you know, any questions you have, you could put it out to the group, how you're going with your practice, et cetera, et cetera. A number of people are doing this by email or a Google group or something, which is a great way of doing it. I don't want to make this arduous or a big commitment, but something that supports you. And we'll check in and see how it works. As I said, this was an experiment for me. I found it valuable in the longer programs and to see if we can do it in this one, I I think is interesting. So use that as a resource, you know, whatever way you were connecting, whether it was by email, things only move or happen if you, 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 each individual one, put some effort into it. It's so easy in a group to kind of think, well, someone else will do it or, you know, I don't need you get you get out of this practice what you put into it. So really invite that showing up in that way. I think it will be helpful. 
And as far as practice, what I would suggest for you are two, two basic options. So we have four weeks until the next class. You could take one week. There are six uh, of the different body contemplations. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend the death ones, but maybe you want to take those up. Um, but take four of the six, so just look and see. And before you sit, again, I'll just presume you're sitting every day. Maybe you don't, but when you sit, read that little section of the sutta. It's interesting just to have that kind of connection back to the text and the words. So you read it, if it's upon the breath or the elements, you know, it's very simple. Those sections are quite short, but it just reminds us. So you read that section, and for that week, you practice with that section. So you take four of the six. The other thing you could do, extra credit, is to do the 32 parts of the body. Because how often are you going to have someone inviting you to do that? I mean, for me, it's never happened. So I, I think it's probably rare. And there are these great resources. Bob Stahl has put together on his website, 32parts.com, a 33-week um, syllabus for going through the th 33, 32 parts of the body. I mean, you could continue for, you know, what's that? And then to next year if you wanted with this. But I really, if you want to do that, look at his website. Maybe, you know, as I said, you go in order. You, if you start with the earlier lists and whatever feels right for you, um, they're easier to access for most people. So you maybe just do the first two sections. And he's got a whole thing about how you do it forward and backward and then forward and backward and then you add. He gives all the instruction. He has pictures of, of the body parts. So that's just if you're interested. But I mean, again, it's a rare opportunity to do something like that. Yes, 32parts.com. If you just type in 32 parts, there's not many things that come up. But on mine, that comes up straight away. So and we talked about, um, so one of them of the sections on the body is the four postures. So we were talking about sitting, walking, standing, lying down to do some lying down meditation. And I said a little bit earlier, that's just basically the same practice when you do lying down meditation. But a good practice to do is a body scan too. And how many people know the MBSR or Goenka style of body scan? Well, so not everyone. So body scan is, you know, you just move your attention through the body. And for the MBSR practitioners, with a, an emphasis on relaxation. So, you know, just... Maybe once try a lying down meditation when you wake up in the morning, go to sleep at night, perhaps during the day. You know, instead of doing your sitting meditation. I have a, one of my teachers said everyone on a retreat should do one period of lying down meditation a day just to get used to doing it because the Buddha said we should practice in that way. You could include walking meditation as one of the practices that you take up. Most people don't think of doing walking meditation. I know I don't even think of doing walking meditation. But it actually can be quite good. Instead of just plopping down and having the body be a little achy and the mind restless, just walk for a few <coughs> minutes and see if that helps you connect. So just to look at the different things that we did during the day and see, divide it into four segments. Do your own practice, your own syllabus. And then that's what you can check in with or, or report to um, your Dharma buddy group, you know, that you did this and this is what you felt or you didn't get this or that didn't work at all or you, you meant to do that and you didn't have time. Whatever. Be real. You know, don't pretend to be 
what you're not, or the greatest, we're not the greatest meditators in the world, or we wouldn't be here doing this. We're learning, so we can learn together and support each other. So that was my homework for the month. Any questions about that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Everybody was going so slow. Can I do that and go fast? Sure. I mean, I, I did say, you know, the three speeds of walking. The first one is basically normal pace. You can be mindful at any speed. It's not going to hinder me. You can be mindful at any speed. It's just sometimes harder to be mindful if things are going by really fast. But if that's what helps you be mindful, sure. You know, when I, I hike, I... My husband complains, I walk faster than anyone. I have not met someone who likes to walk faster than me, you know, apart from someone who's 30-year-old and lives in Durango, Colorado, where she's at 8,000 feet. But I like to walk fast. So um, you can be mindful, totally. Yeah, just find, that's, again, part of what we want to do here is find something that works for each of us. So there is that. And then um, Dhamma Buddies and... Uh, I spoke about Donna and how this class is, um, the invitation is to share in the support and sponsorship of these kind of teachings. If you're motivated, if this is helpful for you, um, always appreciated. So thank you for that. And then lastly, as a, an example of non-mindfulness, one of our teachers who just finished teaching retreat left a bag behind. And it's, I thought, oh, maybe it's a little bag, but no, it's a big bag. It's like, how did he... Anyway, he lives in Oakland, and so we wondered if there's anyone who's driving to Oakland who could just take the bag to their home, and he will come pick it up from you. It's Wes Niska is the teacher. Anyone who lives in Oakland? Thank you. So could you see Katie? Just her office is out there. Just drop by there on your way out, and she will give you a very big, hard-to-miss bag. <laughs> Somehow he did. So... Bef oh, there she is. So there, she whoever that was, she's here now, Katie. Uh, one, okay. Hi, is this on? I'll just yell. Um, if if I could just see Elizabeth Hack and Debbie Rusky in the office um, at the end of the day, that would be very helpful. Okay. And so I like to close with a dedication of merit from the practice we've done today. But before I do that. I want to make the little logistical announcements that we have to make. Katie, you want the chairs put away? Yeah. So, you know, if any of you would uh, like to just help, we put all the chairs back over there so they can vacuum, et cetera. Anything you've taken out, put back over there so that the room is empty when we leave. And a uh, last reminder to mindfulness. I live in Woodacre, so I live close by. I drive in and out of Spirit Rock all the time. And what we do is ask people when they leave here to turn right and then left into Woodacre, into, onto railroad, and it's about two minutes longer. So you've sat here for eight hours. Two minutes is not unbearable to go longer. And drive around that way to get back onto Sir Francis Drake if you're heading east. I see many people, as I live in Woodacre, who don't do this. It's extremely dangerous to go left out of Spirit Rock, to do a U-turn on Sir Francis Drake, to do a U-turn on railroad. I will be driving out. I'll be down by the horses, feeding the horses. I will see you if you do that. I will be very unhappy. <laughs> and also the police sometimes sit out there waiting for people to do that. So please do not do that. Just go right, then left, and you'll be happily on your way back home. Some of us who 
are those directionally challenged, and so I was hoping to take my map quest and go backwards using how I got here. So I have really no idea what you said. <laughs> I'm just going to try to go back home. Okay, so if you go out of Spirit Rock, the road, the, 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 there, are, there are posts that guide you to go right. You might, you want to go left. Where do you live? But you're going into San Rafael. I'm taking I-80. I need to get on I-80. So yes, I'm taking yeah. um, so I-37. So you have to go right. Okay. And it's only for a couple of hundred yards, and then you turn left. And that's Sir Francis Drake? No, the right is Sir Francis Drake. Sir Francis Drake is our driveway, is our road out here. You turn right on Sir Francis Drake, out of our driveway, turn left into Woodacre, and then another left, and that will take you right back onto Sir Francis Drake. It's a beautiful drive. It's yeah. like a hundred acre woods. And your map quest, as soon as you turn right, will tell you where to go. <laughs> anyway, let's yeah. just... You'll follow the... You'll follow, follow everyone else. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. That's why I wanted to get that up because it always ends up a bit like this. Coming to practice and hear these teachings, I think is... Um, because I'm biased, a great blessing that we have the opportunity, the good fortune, the time that these teachings are available. So in coming to practice here today, even though you may have had moments of sleepiness or dullness or perhaps irritation or restlessness, the basic intention is to deepen in kindness, in mindfulness, and in openness and in freedom. And so there have been beautiful qualities that have been cultivated in a day of practice like today. So we acknowledge that in ourselves. This is part of our mindfulness practice is recognizing when these kinds of states of mind are present. And we can appreciate them and enjoy the benefit they bring to ourselves. But we also recognize that we are not just doing this practice for ourselves, but actually share it and impact it, impact everyone we meet. Um, whether we recognize it or not. So we consciously offer to share the merit of our practice, the blessings of our practice, with other beings for their blessings and their well-being, so that our practice is in the service of and for the well-being of ourselves and all beings everywhere. May all beings be safe. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free. So I thank you very much for your attention, for your practice, for your questions. Um, enjoyed sharing these teachings with you and really hope that you come back. Shada Rogel will be here next time. She's a very different style, but we'll do this very important teaching on Vedna or feeling tone and we'll just allow you to deepen even more in, this, in these teachings. So thank you. Drive safely. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.